Jewish time. Different cultures tell different stories. The great novelists of the 19th century wrote fiction that's essentially ethical. Jane Austen and George Eliot explored the connection between character and happiness. There's a palpable continuity between their work and the Book of Ruth. Dickens, more in the tradition of the prophets, wrote about society and its institutions and the way in which they can fail to honour human dignity and justice. By contrast, the fascination with stories like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings is conspicuously dualistic. The cosmos is a battlefield between the forces of good and evil. This is far closer to the apocalyptic literature of the Qumran sect and the Dead Sea Scrolls than anything in Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. In these ancient and modern conflict narratives, the struggle is out there rather than in here. It's out there in the cosmos rather than in here within the human soul. And that is closer to myth than to monotheism. There is, however, a form of story that is very rare indeed, of which Tanakh is the supreme example. It's the story without an ending, which looks forward to an open future rather than reaching closure. It defies narrative convention. Normally we expect a story to create a tension that is resolved on the final page. That's what gives art a sense of completion. You don't expect a sculpture to be incomplete, or a poem to break off halfway, or a novel to end in the middle. Schubert's unfinished symphony is the exception that proves the rule. Yet that is what the Bible repeatedly does. Consider the Chumash, the five Mosaic books. The Jewish story begins with a repeated promise to Abraham that he will inherit the land of Canaan. Yet by the time we reach the end of Deuteronomy, the Israelites have not yet crossed the Jordan. The Chumash ends with a poignant scene of Moses on Har Novo in the present-day Jordan, seeing the land to which he has journeyed for 40 years but is destined not to enter from afar. Nevi'im, the second part of Tanakh, ends with Malachi foreseeing the distant future, understood by tradition to mean the Messianic age. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Nevi'im, which includes the great historical as well as prophetic books, thus concludes neither in the present or the past, but looking forward to a time not yet reached. Ketuvim, the third and final section, ends with King Cyrus of Persia granting permission to the Jewish exiles in Babylon to return to their land and rebuild the temple. None of these is an ending in the conventional sense. Each leaves us with a sense of a promise not yet fulfilled. A task not yet completed, a future seen from afar but not yet reached. And the paradigm case, the model on which all the others are based, is the ending of Bereshit in this week's parasha. Remember that the story of the people of the covenant began with God's call to Abraham to leave his land, his birthplace and his father's house and travel El Haaretz Areka to the land that I will show you. Yet no sooner does he arrive than he is forced by famine to go to Egypt. That is the fate repeated by Jacob and his children. Genesis ends not with life in Israel, but with a death in Egypt. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear a oath saying God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up to this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Again, a hope not yet realized, a journey not yet ended, a destination just beyond the horizon. Is there some connection between this narrative form and the theme with which the Joseph story ends, namely forgiveness. It is to Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition that we owe a profound insight into the connection between forgiveness and time. Human action, she argues, is potentially tragic. We can never foresee the consequences of our acts, but once done, they can't be undone. We know that he who acts never quite knows what he's doing. He always becomes guilty of consequences he never intended or even foresaw, that no matter how disastrous the consequences of his deed, he can never undo it. All this is reason enough to turn away with despair from the realm of human affairs and to hold in contempt the human capacity for freedom. What transforms the situation from tragedy to hope, she argues, is the possibility of forgiveness. Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. Forgiving, in other words, is the only reaction which does not merely react, but acts anew and unexpectedly, unconditioned by the act which provoked it and therefore freeing from its consequences, both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. Atonement and forgiveness are the supreme expressions of human freedom, the freedom to act differently in the future than one did in the past, and that's atonement, and the freedom not to be trapped in a cycle of vengeance and retaliation, that is, forgiveness. Only those who can forgive can be free. Only a civilization based on forgiveness can construct a future that is not an endless repetition of the past. That, surely, is why Judaism is the only civilization whose golden age is in the future. It was this revolutionary concept of time, based on human freedom, that Judaism contributed to the world. Many ancient cultures believed in cyclical time in which all things returned to their beginning. The Greeks developed a sense of tragic time in which the ship of dreams is destined to founder on the hard rocks of reality. Europe of the Enlightenment introduced the idea of linear time with its close cousin progress. Judaism believes in covenantal time. Well described by Harold Fish in these words. The covenant is a condition of our existence in time. We cooperate with its purposes, never quite knowing where it will take us, for the readiness is all. In a lovely phrase, Harold Fish spoke about the Jewish imagination as shaped by the unappeased memory of a future still to be fulfilled.
Tragedy gives rise to pessimism. Cyclical time leads to acceptance. Linear time begets optimism. Covenantal time gives birth to hope. These are not just different emotions. They're radically different ways of relating to life and the universe. They're expressed in the different kinds of story people tell. Jewish time always faces an open future. The last chapter is not yet written. The Messiah has not yet come. Until then, the story continues. And we, together with God, are the co-authors of its next chapter. Shabbat Shalom.